Hi there, this is Dennis Anyone. I'm Dennis Hensley, and I'm a, I am in the hotel room in Beverly Hills with our guest today, playwright Jonathan Tolens. The play is Byron Seller, and we're at the Montage. And you just got back from a Pretty Woman shopping trip in Beverly Hills. Oh, if only. If only, <laughs> if only I had had a full makeover um, paid for by my John. Um, no, I, can't, I just, someone, someone, an old boss of mine, at the opening night party of Byron Cellar last night at the Taper, I um, accidentally spilled an entire glass of red wine on my uh, brand new khaki suit. And he very generously today sent over a new suit, which That's was amazing. not necessary, but it was really nice of him. And so anyway, so I had to go. I, but, but you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm fat and I was afraid. I was going to say that you are not fat. Oh. I was going to say that you look really good. <laughs> no, thank that you. was my second salvo. But I think I was a little too fat for these pants. But no, then they said, no, those are the right size. But they, this is sad, but they, they, they stretched out the waistband. They said, that's all, right. all you need to do. That's all you need to do. Anyway. So, so last night was opening night of Buyer yeah. and Seller at the Mark Taper Forum. How did it go? How, do you, how was last night? Other than being um, getting getting red wine on my suit, sure. I have to say, and not even that turned out to be good because the suit he gave me is much better than the suit that See? he ruined. Um, <clears throat> no, I have to say, it it could not have gone better. I Amazing. Mean, it was it was like you know it was this play almost always plays really well, but last night was just off the charts. Well, I and saw on it. all of the previews here. The the fact that the the play is about L.A. and has so many L.A. references. In fact, all week people have been saying, "Oh my God, did you add all that stuff?" For the taper, and it's like no, it was always in there. It's just now, it's like the life that people are living in the room. Um, it was the taper crazy. is even mentioned in the text. You yes. mentioned the taper. What happens in that moment when your character brings up the Mark Taper Forum, which, for those of you in other parts of the country, is a is a theater here in town, an established professional theater. It's like the mo the most prestigious <clears throat> theater in LA, and not the, one of the most prestigious nonprofit theaters in the country. Uh, people laugh. I mean, it, it is this weird, like, sort of meta moment that because right. the, the character the main character is complaining that he can never get a job at the Mark Taper Forum and now here he is doing this play at the Mark Taper Forum so right. it's weird yeah. so um, explain for our listeners the the plot of Byron Seller Byron Seller um, imagines uh, an underemployed actor in LA named Alex Moore um, who gets fired from Disneyland and then um, ends up getting an interview for a strange job on the west side of L.A. And he ends up getting hired to be the shopkeeper uh, in the mall in the basement of Barbara Streisand's house in Malibu. Now, she, does, she actually has a shopping mall in her basement uh, underneath the barn, I believe. Um, and she wrote a book in 2010 called My Passion for Design. It's kind of a coffee table book that has pictures of the mall. And that's how everybody found out about it. And, um, and when I saw that, I just made a joke saying, you know, how would you like to be the guy who works down there? And that's how it started. And, and then, so, and then where did it go? how did it go from like, what if to, oh, I think I could write this? Well, it was, it was a several step process. I, I thought the idea of someone working down there was really funny. And... <clears throat> I originally wrote a, a page and a half long essay for uh, that I submitted to the New Yorker, a shouts and murmurs piece, because it felt like one of those shouts and murmurs pieces where you right. have like a little quotation from something that's real, which you know I had a quotation from like Harper's Bazaar about the basement mall, and then it was a diary of a guy who gets hired and he works there for like a week and a half before he's fired. Um, 
And so I submitted it. They they turned it down. But I had a blog at the time because that was back when you know we had blogs. Right. And, uh, um, I had a blog until uh, Apple stopped supporting iWeb software, and I didn't have the energy to like learn something new. So that was the end of my blog. That was the end of your blog. Yes. But anyway, but I put it on the blog, and I have a, I have a friend named Craig Gartner. I don't know if you know him, but I Craig, know the name. Craig is a talent manager, and uh, he represents Jesse Tyler Ferguson. And he said you should write this as a one man show for Jesse. Um, and I thought, oh, that's a big opportunity because Jesse's a major star, and if he wanted to do something, if he liked it, it, it would get done. But also, the minute he said it, I kind of knew he was right, that it, it is a one-man show. Because there's something about the, the basement mall is like a great setting for a play because it's this artificial environment, and it's so wackadoo, you know, right. already, that it's automatically funny. You just tell people that, you know, so I could write it straight, but it ends up being really funny because of the how absurd it is. Um, and I also knew it had to be a one-man show because I didn't want anybody ever dressed up as Barbara Streisand right. in the show because I wanted it to be a play. I didn't want it to feel like a sketch or a you know a, a, a camp thing. So not that there's anything wrong with camp. Not thing, that there, but no, the, you know, please. But, but this is just not what I wanted to write. Right. So anyway, so so um, I started <laughs> working on it. I wrote I wrote I wrote the play, and Jesse um, liked it and wanted to do it. But he you know has modern family, and right. he uh, would only be available in the summers. Last summer, he ended up doing Shakespeare in the Park, and he said, and I said, well, I would wait for him for this summer, actually, if he would commit to doing it, but he was afraid that, you know, something else might come along, and he didn't want me to be stuck waiting, so he said, if you can, you know, find another actor and do it earlier, go ahead, and my next phone call was to Michael Urey, because um, he and I had become close friends uh, working on Partners, which was on TV two years ago, right. and he, before that, he had done a play reading for me in New York, and I just saw, well, first of all, I fell in love with him. He's the greatest actor and, and, and lovely, lovely person. And um, he just knows how to do my stuff. Like, you give, I give him my writing, and it, it, it comes out as if he's making it up, and it's so natural in his mouth, and his, his, he gets my rhythm, and he just makes it better. He just makes it better. Um, I also loved Michael because when we met, it turned out he had been a big fan of mine since high school. Wow. So, yeah. That's cool. He did scenes from the Twilight of the Golds when he was in high school. So. Well, I he's Michael Yuri from Ugly Betty, for those of you who yeah. uh, know the name but can't place it. He made a documentary called Thank You for Judging. I've seen it. About oral interpretation contests in, in high school, like speech and drama. And I did that when I was in high I school. I did too. And it's a weird subculture. Certain schools are into it. Certain schools aren't. You go and perform... Um, scenes but you're holding a script and there's all these rules and it's very competitive and <laughs> we didn't made hold it, a script i didn't have to hold a you, script. you we did ah. see the rules are very different in different places i was the I'll, I'll, very few chances i have to say this i was the new york state and united states champion in dramatic interpretation so you did drama who what yes. was your what was your big uh salieri in Amadeus. Oh my it was, gosh. It was a cutting. Were you doing more than one? Were you, cuttings? You used it the word cutting. cutting. Now, did you do both characters and kind of switch your focus? No, I didn't. I thought that was, that looked always, always that was bullshit. stupid. Because <laughs> this is so exactly I what did, I did. So I did, yeah. I did, it was, it was first the old Salieri at the beginning of the play, yeah. and then the young Salieri at the, at the end of the first act. And you went all the way to the top. I went, but it was, it was the Catholic League, which sure. is funny because it came from a Jewish high school, but it was, it was the Catholic League. Right. There. But I won. And, but anyway, but Michael did it too. And he that's why he made that king yeah. of it and 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 he always says that totally prepared him for doing this play it, it is because you have to play all the parts and yeah. um i did night must fall 
by Emmeline <laughs> Williams. That was my big showstopper because it had it's insanity. It was, it was a thriller. I saw that with Matthew yeah. Broderick. Right. So I did Broadway. both parts. Yeah. I was gender bending. I also did a cutting from the Coneheads because Smart. it had been published in a book. So I was able to do that. And but you, so Mike, you were, you were working the rules. I was you really like, trying to twist it, and and then. Um, but his documentary was wonderful and beautiful, and I was so moved by it. But it opens with him as a young person, the video footage of him doing it, and he was so good. Yeah. I'm like, he probably did this documentary just because he needed people <laughs> to see how fucking good he was at that. But it was perfect training for your thing because it's yeah, it all him. Out yeah. yeah, I love it. Now, how is it different here than in New York? Because I saw it when it was in New York. Right. Well, it's only different here in two ways. One is that the theater is three and a half times the size. And how does that feel? Um, actually, great. I mean, before we did it here, we did it in, in Chicago and D.C. And D.C. was even bigger than here. But this is the first time we're in a real thrust house. So the, yeah. the, the, the audience is on three sides of Michael. And it, it, it feels like a guy telling a story at a campfire. Like his relationship with the audience is extremely intimate and warm. And um, it, 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 they start loving him before he says the first line. You can just feel it. It's really, it's wonderful. Actually, it's different in three ways, not two, three. So the three. first way is that it's much bigger. The second way is that um, Michael has now done the show you know, about 425 times. He's, he, you know, so you saw it pretty early in the ride. You yeah. saw it right after we opened. I saw it the really early. Theater. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's like watching, you know, I don't know, choose your metaphor, like, you know, Jack Nicholas play golf or something. Right. I mean, he is at the, so at the top of his game and can do Does anything. he try different things or is it just a sort oh, of yeah. deep, do you know what I mean? Oh, you did that tonight. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes like he'll find little things. Yeah. I mean, you know, small variations but he always says that it's different every night because so much depends on the audience you know and he takes so much off of them well and, and he starts off just addressing them yeah. very casually very you immediately feel like some, it's your dishy friend telling you the story of your and life that's exactly what we always yeah. talked about in rehearsal what we wanted it to be yeah. in fact a lot of people say to me so like did, does michael just make up that part at the beginning and like, i mean no he didn't but, <laughs> kind of a but it's great yeah that he, they think that but um and then the third way it's different is that the play is set in Los Angeles and has so many references to specific little things about living here that people don't really talk about. And so when those things come up in the play, you can feel an extra excitement and a bit of energy. Right. You know? When he goes for his first meeting, he's late in traffic and Barbara's assistant says, I don't want to hear traffic. There's always traffic. Don't <laughs> even talk to me about traffic. And everyone that's ever lived in LA or been late or is like, oh, okay, I get it. Oh, okay. It's like yeah. one of those jobs. Yeah. and. There's one joke where, where somebody says Barbara won't even deal with the 405, let alone yeah. go do a Broadway show. Right. But it's kind of true because when she made the guilt trip, the whole shoot was like 30 miles from her house. I heard that, yes. It was a road trip pretty... movie and it was all <laughs> shot in Malibu. I know. And, but, you know, I guess she's worth it. She's totally worth it. But she was amazing <laughs> in that movie. I was watching it so ready to gun for her and I'm like, she's so gifted. I she's thought she was great. a really gifted comedian. Yes. And actually, Michael found most useful uh, when he was preparing to do the show watching her recent comedies because in interviews now she's re very guarded and she's unhappy doing them um, and old movies she's you know, much younger but so the, the, to find the barber that we imagine at home and enjoying this relationship with this young guy working in her house where he, she feels safe yes he found that the Fockers movies were the most useful I mean Guilt Trip came out actually after yeah. he started I think but yeah he found the, the Rose Fokker was the you know the barber that helped him the most I love that 
Now, when you sent me, I'd seen the play, but I wanted to refresh my memory, so you sent me a PDF, mm-hmm. and it's the Samuel French font. I don't the even D- know if it's... GPS. Uh, right, but it's the John way... Play service, yeah. The way it looks and the type. Yeah. When you first started um, as a playwright and you saw one of your plays like that, oh, yeah. was it a, a rush like, oh, remember in high school when you'd get your play and this is what it looked like, and that was the design and the graphic on the cover, and that's my name on it? Totally. Yeah, no, it was the, the Twilight of the Golds. So was the first one I had. Yeah published that way that was that was really um it was thrilling and then because it hasn't changed ever like they never yeah, like we're gonna the update the font it's <clears throat> sometimes that. they play around with covers and things, right but yeah but the one um and the other thing that was really a big thrill for me is um in i guess 2004 uh grove atlantic put out a book of three of my plays so like an actual paperback that you can see in bookstores sometimes. What are the and three plays? It, well, the book is called The Last Sunday in June and other plays. So Which I missed. Um, it's never been done in L.A., that play. It's The Last Sunday in June, Twilight of the Golds, and If Memory Serves are in the right. book. And yeah. The Last Sunday in June was set at a gay pride. It was, it's a, oh, yeah, it's in a, I've got to... I've got to read that. Oh, I'm going to order it today. It's in, a, it's in a, an apartment on Christopher Street on Gay Pride Day, and this, this couple, their plan is to go to Pottery Barn to buy lamps. <laughs> but all these people they know show up at their apartment because you can watch the parade outside their right. window. And um, anyway, things take off from there. A bird's actually, eye view. And so the play, that play was uh, off-Broadway 11 years ago, but... Um, it doesn't seem that long ago. I know. I remember you talking about it. It doesn't seem that long ago. But then, oh, thank well, we're What's happening? But, <laughs> but in, when we were doing uh, Buyer and Seller in Chicago... They were kicking off their gay pride stuff, and um, there was a gay theater there called the, uh, the About Face Theater. They did a benefit reading of the last Sunday in June, and Michael Urie and his partner, uh, Ryan Spong, played the couple ah. in the play. And I flew out for it, and it was great. It was How really fun. fun. It was like we got to make them, they got to do it in L.A. Yeah, that'd be great. When I saw you in New York, <clears throat> when I saw the show, I remember you saying something to me. It, the show was just starting to blow up, and really, the reviews and all that stuff, and you were like, this is the thing. Who would have thought this would be the thing? Yeah, yeah. That. So, what what was it like for you before then? You'd have different successes and things, you know, ups and downs and stuff like that. But this, did you feel like this was the first thing that was like, sort of unequivocally a success in that way? Yeah, I mean, this is the first thing <clears throat> of mine that is both critically successful and commercially successful. I mean, it's actually made money, which, you know, <laughs> who knew who knew that was possible? Um, it's so great. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, that's not why we're uh, staying at this nice hotel room in, in Beverly Hills. This is because right. my mother, you know, arranged for the whole family out here for the opening. Just How fun. Set that straight. But um, it's, uh, it, it's just one, I, I feel like I can say, like the rest of my life, I wrote by Aaron Seller. Like it's that, it's that, that kind of thing that, a lot of people and a lot of the right people love it. And is that a relief? Never, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's sad that we think that way, but, but of it course is. you do. But you try is, yeah. and try. Like when I, because Twilight of the Golds was something that was always on my radar. I'd seen the film, and I always thought it was a huge success. But then when I was researching on it, it, it on Broadway, it wasn't a huge success. You no, know, it was a huge success here in LA. It really like hit, and everyone went to see it, and it sold to the movies. And then it went to New York and it died a miserable, horrible death. The critics hated it. But I always say that that was something that was very valuable to me for my my career and my life because, you know, I was young. I was like 26 years old. Um, I mean, it opened on Broadway three days after my 27th birthday. Wow. And I experienced great success and what felt like humiliating failure in the span of 10 months with the same thing. Right. 
And so it really taught me that, you know, you can't control any of it. You just have to keep doing the best you can, you know, and just hope it goes your way sometimes. Well, I think part of the reason that Buyer and Seller is such a hit and, and people like it so much is that it's a funny concept. It's kind of like absurd. And yet it's so rich in the stuff that you, you discuss within this sort of high concept. And things about fame, things about loneliness, things about stuff, and it, it's quite profound in parts. And um, that's what I thought was so. Thank did you. did it sneak up on you in that way, like when you were writing it, like oh, that's a fun little joke about this or that, or I have this Prince of Tides reference, and then like oh, I can kind of examine this stuff as well. It did kind of. I mean, you know, when I started, my my goal was to make it feel like a play. I didn't want it to feel like a sketch. I really wanted it to feel like you you go on this satisfying you know journey. I hate using the word journey, but whatever. It's a journey. Uh, it's I a journey. went on it, John. I'll <laughs> say it. It was a journey. But you you, you I see, took a lunch. You see a relationship begin and flower and go through ups and downs, and then you know it, the play comes to a conclusion. I won't say what happens. Um, but I, I I knew that the premise let me bring up themes that I care about, and and when I was researching it, I mean, I started by getting a copy of my passion for design. And Which, when that book came out, it was like fodder for a lot of people, either even at a dinner table or at a right. one-man show. I, I remember people holding up the picture of the fact that Barbara wouldn't have yellow koi, orange koi fish. They had to be yeah. black and white. That's mentioned in the play. Yeah. Actually. It's yeah. like yeah. like all, that, all of those crazy, <laughs> can you believe this stuff from that book. Yeah. But, but so you I, took I, it to the next level. So I got the book and, and I read it cover to cover and I took very careful notes as I read the book of anything that caused any intense response in me. Like if it made, if I thought it was really funny or really crazy or sometimes really poignant. How many things. highlighters did you go through doing that? I didn't do it that way, actually. <laughs> I thought of it. No, no, I kept the book pristine. Right. Because, you know, she, she, she would want it that, that way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I just, I typed up, I, I typed up all these notes. And, um, and I found, you know, little things like, you know, in the book, there's a, a moment where she, she, she sort of says that, she has this big um, grand room in the barn and she had a big table and she was always looking for a second one that would match it and then she did and she, she says something like she dreamed of having big dinner parties in that room but then she decided she'd be too afraid of people getting dirt on the Aubusson rugs. And I found that incredibly poignant. She chose the rugs over the people. Yeah, yeah. She was a victim of her own stuff. So I did that with that book and then also I read a biography of her and I did the same thing. And a lot of the things in the play, you know, are real. One of the, the, a line that becomes incredibly important is a line I found in the biography of her, uh, a line from an interview that she gave, where she explained why she stayed with John Peters so long. She said, because he knew what to do on Sundays. I love that. It was and like a normal human being thing. We're going to go here to a deli. We're going to go to the park, whatever yeah. it is. And it's think, like human stuff. And everybody in show business who, you know, is doing it partly because we have some kind of wound and we need as much attention as we can possibly get knows that feeling of when you're in between getting that stuff that makes you feel okay with yourself. Like now, for example, speaking for myself, <laughs> how like this you, moment. How do you fill the time? You know, yeah. how do you fill the time? And so that line was so poignant to me that, you know, I, I took it and then I kind of framed it and found a place where it could sort of expand. And then in addition to the books, I, I um, just went back and thought of every great Barbara story I had ever heard right? and made notes. And then once I had all of these things, I saw, you know, the play is pretty simple structurally. I mean, it's, it's in a series of 
episodes. You know, there's the the Fifi the doll episode, and then there's the getting to know the, each other episode in the in the gift shoppy, um, yeah. and then there's and then there's the uh, uh, part where they really get intimate with each other, talking about you know their deepest feelings, and then the pre- preparation for Gypsy. Yeah. section. So, it, you know, I, I knew I had all these big, fun set pieces that became my map of how to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a few things just jumped out at me, and I, I made a note of them. I, like, th- you talk about her wanting to be thought of as pretty, and then um, the character of Alex, who's your protagonist, has a boyfriend named Barry, who sort of says all of the more, less charitable things about Barbara that a lot of us think. And I love that you really went there with him. Yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, Barry is the one reason why I'm really afraid of if and when Barbara comes to see it. Um, I mean, she's her. I'm sure she's heard all that stuff before, but I had to. But hearing somebody say it, even in the audience, in the way that he says it, but you also because you know a little about, like you'll say, like, oh, he just came from a bad meeting at Warner Brothers, or he came from a bad meeting at Paramount. So you know he's a bitter showbiz guy who's going through his own shit, and that colors. Everything. Yes. So it, it softens him a bit. But you really, he says it. Yes, he does. He does. But the play ultimately sides with Alex, who's really sweet to her and, yeah. and really loving to her. Um, but I had to, you know, I had to write it as if she's not in the room. Yeah. Because it's, I, I wasn't going to write some sort of tribute to her. That's She's had enough of those. And it, and, and it really, I'm, I'm trying to not, I'm not really dealing with the real Barbara in my head. I'm dealing with this character of this woman we sort of have ideas about and the myth of her. Right. You know, and, and we all sort of react to Barbara in some way, you know, right. do we want to be like that part of her or that part of her? It's, you know, she's, she's sort of such a huge figure that, yeah. um, I had to kind of go there. At mm-hmm. one point, Barry talks about how she's always talking about how sad her childhood was, and she had a water bottle, mm-hmm. and you know that's and, a true story. She always and tells she, the story the, instead about, of a doll, yeah. and blah blah blah. And he said, "Please, she was world famous by 19." Yeah, you know, couldn't she have just gotten it over it like my grandparents did, and all of that? And you're like, right? Like, why is she yeah. playing out this D- Dickensian? Please, sir, can I have some more things? She was the top of the world at 19. But, you know, I mean, there are two sides to it. Because, yes, at the one, on the one hand, she has no right to complain about anything. On the other hand, part of what makes her so interesting to us is that she is so open about still, still dealing with those childhood And they're real. Wounds, those wounds. They don't being, feel put on. Yeah. You just kind of like, really? You can't, you know. Yeah. And yeah. there are, I mean, there, it's true of a lot of people who grew up poor who then become a little bit nuts about money and acquiring things. And, yeah. and get in filling that that hunger, that void that they, they couldn't fill as a child. Yeah. I, um, I, I liked when one of you, one of the characters says that she's not a real person. I think that Barry says that. Barry says that, and, and Alex says, yes, she is. She's my friend. Yeah. But Barry, said, then, Barry then says, well, really? Then call her up. You know, right. and invite her over, and I'll make popcorn, and we'll watch Project One Way. Because, yeah. And that, to me, that comes from just, I've had that a lot. I mean, I've worked with famous people, and, and we all get really excited, and they're very good at creating the illusion that you're becoming really close. Um, but you're not. But you're not. And you're that's not. one of the reasons <laughs> the play touched me so much is because I've had my own brushes with friends who I were quote-unquote famous or whatever. And what I've realized is it's extremely conditional. Yes. And you can't challenge them on anything or it's over. Well, Not even reasonable... Hey, you know what? I thought that was a little whatever when you... Do- you're out. You're out. My husband who is brilliant, um, 
said something once. Uh, he said it about rich people, but it also goes for ce celebrities. He said that he said rich people want to be treated exactly like everybody else until they don't. <laughs> right? And you don't know what that point is going to come. I mean, one of the things, you know, I've worked, I worked a bunch of times with Bruce Valanche, who's right. one of the loveliest people in show business. Always super sweet to me. And one of the things that I really respect about Bruce is, you know, he's worked for every famous diva and all that. And if you ever see the documentary about him called Get Bruce. I saw which it. Which is from, I don't know, like 1990 or something. I mean, 2000s, sorry, not that long. I, I keep erasing decades I know you know what the Bush years were Are. a fuck over the Bush years don't <laughs> really count they felt like a million yeah but we'd like to count them as four and they were eight <laughs> but in that documentary Bruce says I know I'm not really their friend yeah you know and, and I always thought oh wow he, so he really understands he, like, he knows he's honest about what the job is when you're helping these people and it's really exciting it can be really fun and I'm not saying it's mean. It's just it's partly just the just the circumstance of where you are and where they are, and and that doesn't mean that they don't care. In fact, in some ways, they care too much, and that's and they feel very protective and protective and afraid that you can hurt them. Yeah. Um, because they do like. I mean, Barbara does care what Alex thinks of her, and when their relationship kind of blows up in the play, and we don't have to say exactly how, um, I think it's just as painful for her as it is for Alex. And right. I think the audience feels that. Well, when you say they're not, we're not really their friend or whoever it is, it's not like their real friends are down the hall. There might be a handful, but they're not really. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there aren't... It's not like I'm a fake friend and she's going to go hang out with her real friends. You, There might not be any. Yeah. You've or, got Gail. Or sometimes there are... <laughs> it's funny, like last night at the opening... Um, I met Renee Taylor, which was a thrill for me. Oh, that's cool. Because, I mean, I, I think she's well, she, hilarious. She's somebody she that's in Camp Barbara, very, right? Yes, yeah, she's very close to Barbara. She says she, I mean, they've known each other since the very beginnings of their career. Right. And she thought, and she, and she, you know, thought the play was dead on. And she said, she said when she read My Passion for Design, she thought it was so sad. that She was surprised that I was able to turn it into a comedy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. What are some of the other <clears throat> most interesting comments or compliments you've gotten from it by people who know her or don't know her or is it surprising what people take away i'll tell you okay this is something i have not revealed i'll give you this, this an exclusive? exclusive this exclusive yeah and i probably shouldn't reveal it but i'm not going to tell the name okay but this is just a rumor i heard so maybe it's not true but maybe i think it's probably it, a rumor it's it not is. it's probably a rumor i think it is barbara you know is still trying to do the movie of gypsy right and like in the play Apparently, she's looking for a director who'd be willing to do a, take a co-director credit with her. And I heard that uh, from someone that a certain director was asked to take a meeting with Barbara to discuss this, and he was instructed by the producers to prepare for his meeting by seeing buyer and seller. Interesting that that they felt that seeing the seeing the barber in the play would help prepare him for the barber that he's going to meet. Do you think so that's that an amazing she thing? knew that they were sending no, him? I don't right. think so. That's so interesting. My favorite <laughs> weird random barber story is uh, a friend of mine had an, a friend who was also a, a friend of mine, acquaintance friend, uh, who worked in like a law office, and mm -hmm. apparently the story goes like this: that um, James Roland and Barbara Streisand were going in there to go over some legal whatever. And somebody called prenup, ahead, prenup. whatever, mm -hmm. something, and called ahead and said, you know, Ms. Streisand and Ms. Brolin, Mr. Brolin will be coming in, and we would love it if you could have some, and they ordered a whole meal. <laughs> and this poor person on the phone, and we want uh, cherry tomatoes, not plum. This whole, they're like, we don't even have a kitchen. 
Like, we don't even have... But they ordered, like, a very specific meal that couldn't be this, but it had to be that. And I just thought that was so absurd, and I, I used to like to to imagine that Barbara and James were sitting on their balcony in Malibu going, you know, where do we have those delicious profita rolls? That, right, remember right. That, they were They melted in your... Oh, the DMV. Yeah. Oh, my God, they were amazing. <laughs> like, they don't even know where they have food from. Yeah. They're just... <laughs> But like that was crazy. I always love the fact that I, that Barbara's name really is Barbara Brolin. Yeah. Doesn't that sound like it? Barbara Brolin, your court is ready at yeah. two thirty. Court one, you can you know it's just it sounds feels like, like yeah like a country club announcement. Barbara Brolin. Um, you you mentioned at one point in the play you talk about when Barbara was on Oprah with her passion mm-hmm. for design book, and um, they were two old friends with enormous coastal houses comparing notes, and it reminded me like I love when Oprah tries to act down to earth. And um, I remember when Emma Thompson was on promoting some movie and Oprah said, oh, I wanted to watch it again, but I realized I left the DVD in the other house. <laughs> and, and Emma Thompson goes, don't you hate that yes. when you leave it? And she didn't get that Emma Thompson was kind of making fun of her. And Oprah was like, I do hate it. It's all, you know, and I do love that. Like, don't you? Oh, that's so. Well, it's like there's a line in the play. I mean, a joke. I guess I shouldn't give it away. But the Barbara like, is not aware of something. That is very, a very common experience for everyone else. Um, I won't give it away. I it's won't give it away. Joke, it's yeah, good. Yeah. Um, uh, but that, but that, that line in the play. Uh, what I was going to say. It, another. It comes from a true story that I heard that Barbara had no idea about something. Now, when Barbara went on Oprah, the the first draft of the play had a whole long speech about that Oprah um, appearance because about how it was the first time she was on Oprah when she promoted My Passion for Design, first time since the White Mike incident. Yeah, where Oprah was like, she painted my mic. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I told you, in the, in, in the play, we talked about Kathy Griffin, how Kathy Griffin did a whole routine about that. And it's yeah. Kathy Griffin's job is to say things that gay men have either already said or should have said a month earlier and then tell it back to them. So I have <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. I don't even know. I can't even really... I don't even I don't even know if I've heard of that person, but anyway, um, and I also this line jumped out at me today because I thought it was fun. James Brolin talking about OJ, saying it's a shame he had to give up acting. It's kind of like he only sees OJ in relation to his acting career and show business instead of like, well, he did commit a double murder. Yeah. It was well, like you know, he really had he was really talented. It's too bad about that, you know. He could have done some a lot of great roles. Uh, on like, Saturday night, um, Michael Spound <clears throat> came to the show. Michael played Rob, the husband, in uh, in the Twilight of the Golds in the original production in Armory right twenty one years ago. And you may remember Michael Spound was a, a regular, a star of the TV series Hotel, which was uh, could have been set at this very hotel. Yeah. Yes, but no, it's actually it was the St. Francis in San Francisco. Oh, right on. Yeah, yeah. San Francisco. But uh, anyway, that show starring James Brolin. Right. And so he knows James Brolin very well. And he came to the show. He said um, that it was dead on James Brolin. First of all, Michael's James Brolin impression is amazing. Like, it took him a little while to get his Barbara. James Brolin, day one, he was right. James Brolin. Because he's, Michael's also from Texas and has, knows that, like, guy that yeah. James Brolin is. But, um, but in the play, James Brolin talks about, they talk about Capricorn 1, and Michael said, oh my God, James Brolin's always talking about Capricorn 1. I did love that so, movie. Like, I it was certainly was in a sweet spot for people our age. Yeah. Like, it was kind of like, <gasps> One of the earliest... what a shocking conspiracy. Oh my God. <laughs> Could you imagine? But that weird, that movie's so weird. And also, this was stuff that I had in the play that ended up getting cut. But Because in addition to the fact that it's James Brolin and 
it's uh, and Elliot Gould, so that the two Barbra Streisand husbands starred in that movie. But I think James Brolin's wife in that movie was played by Brenda Vaccaro, who plays Barbara's best friend in The Mirror Has Two Faces. Right. So it's like it's like an epicenter of Barbara history there. Right. You have an amazing rant about The Mirror Has Two Faces in the book. Um, let me see if I <laughs> took a screenshot of it. Um, yeah, oh, but she was, you talk, Barry goes on this rant about how she's always talking about she's pretty, and yet she's banged every hot guy in Hollywood. When is she going to get it that she's enough, you yeah, know? she did, she did pretty well. Yeah, she, <laughs> oh, I know what she said. You said for a Mish, you know what? For a Mishkite, I did okay. Mishkite. Oh, okay. I did okay. I mispronounced it. Yeah, I know. You, I didn't realize how un-Jewish you are. I'm so un-Jewish. No, it's Mishkite. Mishkite. Yeah, there's I, a song from, from Cabaret. Cabaret. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, for a Mishkite, I did okay. Yeah. <laughs> He really calls her out. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. But um, but I think that that doesn't that doesn't negate the fact that actually the audience does feel for her when yes. she exposes that she still has that pain, you know. Right. She's I don't like think all we, of us, you know. We, we don't all... feel like the pain is put on. Yeah. We just feel yeah. that it's rare or like a rarity, like a, her experiences and, and all. Right. That. Yeah. Um, now you met her once, mm-hmm. and there was a Kit Kat bar involved, yep. and then that's also mentioned in the. You do that's a reference in the, in in the there. opening of the play. Um, everything in the opening of the play is absolutely true. When when the actor, um, in this case Michael, you're in New York, it's Barrett Fowler right now, um, explains, you know, I only met her once. This is entirely made up. It's not real. You know, uh, yeah. No, she came to see the uh, the play, The Twilight of the Golds, at the Pasadena Playhouse in 1993. 1993, and because um, she had read it. She had read it, and so had Sis Corman, her old producing partner, and she was considering trying to get the rights to make the movie. And so they told me Barbara was coming with a, uh, a, a Sony executive named Gareth Wigan, okay. who was like a, a, a movie executive as played by Max von Sydow. Perfect. Old so school. So they said yes. So they said, okay, she's coming tonight. So I, of course I ran to the theater. And I'm waiting there, and she, she they, they used to have a little, I don't know if it's still there, they used to have a gift shop off the courtyard. Mm-hmm. I know where it is. And she went there, and she came out, and um, she had gotten a Kit Kat bar. And <laughs> she, and I think I said to her, uh, they introduced me, and I think I said something like, well, my life just peaked, you know, which was cheesy, but, you know, yeah. such such the kind of thing that Alex in the play would say to her. Right, right? of course. I said, my life just peaked, and she went, oh, thank you. Um, you wrote a beautiful play. You, you want a piece of my Kit Kat? Cause she, and, I, and I said no because I was afraid it would, something would go wrong. Right. Just, something would go wrong. And, and in retrospect, I think I... Like it would be some test later. You know what? I would have optioned yes. a movie, but you took the yeah. Kit Kat. And that to me said that whatever. You're, yeah. you're a taker. You're a, ta- <laughs> you're a taker. <laughs> and, and, I th- and actually, I think probably I did, made the right decision because she probably didn't really want to share it. You know. Deep down, she didn't. Yeah, and but you know, she it's funny. To be thought of as a sharer. Michael pointed out because in when he was researching, you know, her for the for, to play the part, he watched her um, inside the actor's studio, and they brought her. You know, five minutes in, she's like, "I'm so hungry. How do you do this without eating?" <laughs> and they brought her this big tray of all these candies, and it was the Kit Kat that she went for. So she does love Kit Kats. She does love Kit Kats. Um, anyway, so but but in the end of at the end of the play, there's a moment now where Barbara offers Alex a piece of Kit Kat bar. And that was something that just came up in rehearsal with uh, Stephen, the director, and Michael. And I love that so much because it's like it's it comes full circle after yeah, my experience so long uh, so long ago. Not taking the Kit Kat, the character does take the Kit Kat. I love it. <laughs> I love it. When did you realize it was going to work? The play. Mm-hmm. The the time the when, the moment I thought I I, re, I knew it was going to work. I just knew. The first time Michael Yuri went through the whole show from beginning to end on his feet. 
Um, he had been doing table work, and they had blocked uh, chunks of it, you know. And they invited me. So I went back. I, I stay for table work, and then I go away and let them work without me. And then I came. It was a Saturday afternoon, and we, he'd been rehearsing for maybe two weeks or so. And, you know, he had a script on a music stand on the side of the stage. He refused to call for line. He, he felt he had to, he didn't want to call for line ever. He would muscle through until he just couldn't. And so he would go over to the, and just check the script. So it was really rough. It was a very difficult experience for him because, you know, Michael's incredibly facile. And usually, if, you know, if it's not a one-man show, he says he doesn't even have to think about learning the lines. Like, he, they just come. But this is a, a big, it's all big him. job. So anyway, it was the first time he went through it, <clears throat> and it was long, you know, but I was in tears at the end of it. I mean, I just was shaken, and I, I then went to, to meet uh, my husband and, and some friends. We were going someplace that night, and I, and I walked into the restaurant, and they said, what, what happened? What's the matter? And I said, I think I just saw a performance that everyone's going to be talking about for years. I just knew that there was something kind of magical about this material and Michael and um, and the director and it just like it all felt exactly what I wanted it to be like it wasn't just a, a, a parody and it it was a piece that sort of surprised you that went to places that you didn't expect this kind of silly thing uh, to go to so I mean that's when and then the other thing is like right before two nights before the critics started coming at, at Rattlestick where we started Michael and I were at a restaurant and Someone came up, some, a famous person came over to the table and, the, and someone who was with us said, oh, we just saw this play, you've got to see it. And they heard what it was about. And this person, as like, like, it like always happens, started telling their barber stories. Everyone, right. everyone has their barber story. And one of them was um, a, a, a story with a, with a joke that, that the one we mentioned earlier about how she doesn't know something. Right. I won't say what it was. But um, it was a true story. And it was so great. And I turned to Michael. I said, it goes in tomorrow. Because there was a perfect spot for it already in the play. And that's when I felt like, oh, wow, the universe is sending us one last little gift of like a perfect big laugh for the show at the right place. You know? Right. That, I find that always happens when you start working on something. If you just let people know a little bit, the, all the information starts finding you. Like all the right. things you need start coming to you. I remember when I was writing my second novel, and I was under a really tight deadline, I would go out to a coffee shop and somebody would say something and I'd be like, I'll take that. You're exactly. so, it almost yeah. feels like a scavenger and it almost feels like cheating because you, you're so alive in it and things are coming at you and it's not all the time. It's once in a while when you're, especially when you're in the home stretch, but it literally felt shame. I felt almost embarrassed at like yeah. how greedy or whatever. I, yep. Thanks. I'll have it. That, that's the perfect name. Thank you. Yeah, and exactly. it's in, you know, and then it's, it's but that's the job. Really, it means it's, it's really alive yeah. in you, and and it means you you just you have your antenna open. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, I've been saying lately that I realize now that the best the, the job of a playwright or any kind of writer, I guess, is to find a premise that lets you use all your best stuff from the last fifteen years. <laughs> and that's what I was going to ask you about the timing of this in your career, because you wouldn't have written this when you were younger. You were still probably really enamored of show business and, <laughs> and exciting. And then when you start experiencing the ups and downs and, and some success, some failure, and, and struggling to find your way and, and just keep going, and then you see the people that have it all and they seem miserable, <laughs> and you're like, what the, what's important? Right. And you're, you talk about at the end of the, the, <clears throat> the play one way of what's important, and it's beautiful and lyrical and lovely. But I feel like this time for you to write about this stuff was perfect. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I was at like the right place in the right in my head and in my life. Um, you know, and I like I know what it's like to want things. I mean, I was a, a ridiculous compact disc collector. I still, I mean, I have a huge classical compact disc collection. So I know that like junky high you get at Amoeba when you find something you really right. want, and it's like it's like eighteen dollars. Yes, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that she's got a lot of that, you know. But right. and, and I but, but I connect that to that wanting to hold on to things and wanting not to die. I mean, it's, it's, it all really goes to something really primal in all of us that we want to hold on. You know, and I always feel that anybody who goes through any kind of religious or spiritual quest, they always kind of end up at Buddhism if they're lucky because that's right. all about, no, everything changes, everything goes away, and it's about leaning into the experience you're having right now and just to stop trying to hold on to things. Right. You know, and and a house with your shops that nobody goes to with everything you've acquired your whole life is an example of trying to hold on. And I right. think that, that touches, I think part of the reason the play works is I think that touches something that we all relate to. Right, well, for sure. And what's what's important and what's yeah. not. And, and you start out going, gosh, to have all of that kind of money. And then you realize, oh, there's stuff that goes with it. Mm. Um, now, the play that I remember also seeing, I don't know what year it was, Secrets of the Trade that you yeah. did out here, I loved it. Oh, thank you. And that, that got done off-Broadway um, a year, like, Two years later. What year would that have been? You saw it in early 2008. Yeah. Because it was during the writer's strike, so that's why we were able to get those fantastic actors. John Glover, I remember. John Glover, Amy Aquino. It was Aquino. a tiny theater. It's like 26 seats. Yeah. yeah. Bill Brockdrop. Um, and uh, that play is still my favorite thing I ever wrote, oddly. And um, I thought, like like this show, it has all these layers and all this experience in it. It's about mentoring and mm -hmm. and ha getting someone to mentor you and then finding... D disillusionment, finding it wasn't everything you cracked, thought yeah. it was cracked up to be. And how mentors can't really <clears throat> just hand you a career the way you think they can. Right. Yeah. Have um, you had good mentors in your career? Because I feel like I haven't had that many. I'll and I'm you, a well, little bit like, Whoa. What that play was about really was my coming to appreciate what I did get from mentors was not what you think you're going to get from mentors. Right. Because um, at the end of that play... Uh, the mentor says, don't you understand? I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling, I'm not teaching you what to do. I'm teaching you how to be. Um, he says, you can work, he, he, he says, you can work in a shoe store. I don't care. It's what you carry around inside you. That, And that's hard because when you're 20 or 25, you say, no, give me your job. Give me my right. first job. That's going to be a stepping stone. And some, you know, some people do have experiences where someone actually gives them that push. Right. But I think what, what I got most from mentors what, uh, and and I had a few kind of famous mentors who like gave me a little attention. Was that extra bit of confidence? That just that sense of you, it's worth it for you to right to do your thing and expect other people to pay attention. Right, and if this person thinks I have something, then I've got to right. They got to persevere, right. even I mean, though they're the, not going to give me every job or anything. The line in in the play, remember, he but he talks about uh, the mentor says, "I would be nothing today if if someone hadn't said to me, you 'You've got the stuff. Let me show you what I know.'" You wow, know? and that's that's what it is. But and also uh, specifically in the in the the gay experience, which is what was in the play and it was for me. There's always that danger of the, the older gay man, younger gay man, whether, you know, what, what is the element of, because of, there's always some buzz of sexuality in that relationship. 
Um, and none of my mentor relationships like that were sexual, but I think there was probably the possibility of that if I had wanted it, I think. Right. But, um, but there, there is that feeling of also in, in the play, he tells them, the mentor tells the kid's mother, who's very nervous about this relationship, that what I can give him that you can't is permission to be himself. That sometimes you need some cool gay guy to show you that yeah, you don't have to be, you can still be the good boy you were for your parents and you can be a cool gay guy. Right. You, know I mean? you don't have to be one or the other. And you don't, and you don't necessarily have to be a guy in a tank top. You know right. what I mean? Like, like you can create your own way of doing this. Right. You know, that's not going to feel foreign to who you were because you liked who you were as a kid. Right. You know, and you were pleasing people as a kid. You don't have to give all that up necessarily. Right. You can integrate yeah. it. I mean, obviously that's if you're coming from a, a, a family situation that, that was healthy. Supportive. It's yeah. Healthy. Yeah. And you also worked on Queer as Folk, the American version. Favorite yeah. memory of that? Wow. Um, <clears throat> my favorite memory of that was Jason Schaefer, my good friend, uh, and I got to write Michael's 30th birthday party episode. With House Sparks. With House Sparks. And there was a subplot where um, Emmett was having an AIDS test because he, 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 he slipped and he screwed up and he was afraid he was, he was uh, going to be positive. And there was always the character of Uncle Vic. I remember Uncle Vic. Yes, played by Jack Weatherall, who right. I saw on Broadway as the Elephant Man when I was like 13. Anyway. Wow. I went, and you know who I went to that show with? This is like totally off the track. But no, I love, that. this is tangent, this is a tangent welcoming I went podcast. to that play at the Booth Theater, where Twilight of the Golds later played. Right. But I went to that play with my good friend Andy and his parents, Bernard and Ruth Madoff. Oh my gosh. Yes. Anyway, wow. Another subject. Did you buy the concessions and he he was like, I'll pay you back later and it never happened? <laughs> no. But anyway, no. yeah, no, Andy's a good friend of mine. Anyway, yeah. okay. I bet you he didn't offer a Kit Kat though. <laughs> no. No. Not a Kit Kat. But anyway, but, uh, but on that episode, I wrote a, a speech for Jack Weatherall, for Uncle Vic, who was just sick of hearing Emmett freaking out about his AIDS, his, his AIDS test. Right. And he said something like, um... You know, sex isn't careful. If it is, you're doing it wrong. You know, if you if 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 you if this has happened, then be a man and face it. You know, and I felt it was a rare opportunity, a rare moment where something I got to write on that show that was kind of dangerous and kind of challenging and kind of true and kind of true made it to the screen because um, that show really was just those three words. Yeah, feels like something you can't even say. Yeah. Even yeah. now. Yeah. So they, they let that on. Um, I, That's amazing. Uh, and that was one of my, probably my proudest moment on the show. I mean, that show is very much the, um, the work of the two showrunners. Sure. Uh, Dan Lipman and, uh, and Ron Cowan. If you love the show, then you, sh you should thank them. If you, if you had problems with the show, you know, they're the people you might want to complain to. <laughs> uh, I was only on it for the f first year. All of the writers who worked with them on the first year, none of us were asked back yeah. after that. It was, it was difficult because the vision that they presented when we t got the job, um, which was much more akin to the British version it was based on, right. was not the show that it ended up being. Right. And um, I think it was very much easier for the writers who came into that 
show onto the show after the first season because they had seen it. They knew what they were. They knew what they were in for. Yeah. Um, But still, I love doing it. I love breaking down the stories and stuff. Talking of Queerest Folk and mentors, Russell T. Davies is someone that's helped me a lot in my work. He's wonderful. And he's so nice. Yeah. And supportive and generous and lovely. And um, I remember seeing the British Queerest Folk, and maybe you have something that you saw that inspired you this way. But I remember at the time as a writer, I'd come out with, I think, my first novel, and we were trying to do stuff in Hollywood, and you're thinking of ways to tweak the gay stuff to kind of slip it by, like, (laughs) well, I'll make him a witch or something. You know, like, you felt like you had to trick people about that stuff. And I watched that show, and I was like, oh, you can just tell the truth. You can do that. Not that I could go out tomorrow and write something that brilliant, but it was like this license of, like, he was just telling the truth about stuff. And I felt like that was a non-starter. Yeah. Um, you know what? Byron Seller, one of the things I learned from this is that I wrote, I read the, wrote the first like 20 pages and I gave it to my lawyers. And they said no <laughs> Which one, is probably a good yeah. idea in and, this case. But they said no one is going to produce this play. They said no. She wouldn't really have a case because she's a public figure and it's fair use and it's parody and all that. But... No one, anybody can sue for anything. There's no way to stop her. And no producer is going to want to take that chance because she, you know, she has unlimited means. Right, she's Barbara Streisand. Well, at that point, uh, I had written 20 pages and I really liked it. And I I thought it was something kind of special. So I figured, okay, I'll just write it for me. I'll write it for me and my best friends. And maybe it'll end up being like a blacklist script that gets passed around Hollywood as a secret. Like, oh, you got to read this funny thing about, you know. I think that was the best thing for me. That I, I Thinking that it was never going to see the light of day. I was not writing for the marketplace. I was absolutely just writing what I thought was funny and good. Right. Never even thinking about how it could work. Then what made the difference when somebody said, oh, I'll produce this? Um, the, uh, J- David Vanasselt at the Ralstic Theater, who's the artistic director there, and they, they had done the last Sunday in June, so I sent the script to him. Uh, they did a play not long before this, called 3C by David Ajami, I think his name is. <clears throat> and the, the set of that show was the set of Three's Company. And it was like a wacky sort of... I'm already in. Saw, I'm hooked. I'm I, already in. I don't know. I, I don't even... I, I never saw it, but I think what it was, it was like Three's Company, but Jack really was gay. Right. And it was all sort of a twisted Three's Company kind of setup. Well, the owners of the television show Three's Company, who hoped to maybe do a Broadway musical or something, sued. They because they said, um, you know, they, they didn't want their property, you know, right. damaged in that way. It became a big drama skilled thing about, you know, is it parody? Is it protected by fair use laws and all that? I think ultimately they had to settle where they let the show finish its run there, but it, they but they won't let it be performed anywhere else. Well, so David Vanessel was spoiling for a fight. Like he was when the barber question came up, he said, "Let her come, let her sue." He was the one that w- produced three C. Yes, but he didn't win. Like he so, didn't win, but, but he, he was, was he, he was kind of fired up. up. Yes, he was fired up. So wow. it was great timing. But we talked to lawyers, and they said, "You know, don't you, you can't have her name or her likeness in any advertising for the show." Right. And so, if you look back to any of the press we did before we opened in New York, we never mentioned her. Yeah, we said a megastar, but we never and we never said it was a real person or whether it was a made up character. Right, well, in your the, own marketing, and then once the reviews happen, they write yeah, about what it is. Yeah, and because you know, and and what I thought was okay, it, either it will hit right, 
and people will love it, and they'll see that actually it's not just a hatchet job. Right, and they would be party poopers to go after it. Exactly. In other words, it would just look bad on their yeah. part, like they or, can't take a joke. Or it'll be bad, and no one will like it, and it'll go away, and she'll never hear about it. Yeah. You know? And fortunately, and also fortunately for us, the, the, all the early press said that it was actually very loving toward her. I mean, yeah. we had like one or two reviews from like diehard Barbara Queens who said, how dare they, you know, right. how mean it is to her. And But but the overwhelming majority of the press has been very, you know, very kind and, and specifically saying that we do try to present her as a real human being that you care about. Right. And you do, successfully. Now, you and your husband, Robert Carey, live in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. What changed for you getting out of L.A.? As a writer, as a person... Um, you know Bill Brockdrip? Yes, the actor. Our good friend, wonderful NY- actor. P.D. Bloom. He, uh, he, the first time he came to the, my house in Connecticut, he said, I get it. He said, sometimes you have to get out of the casino. And oh, I, I, I had a visceral reaction to that. Oh my God, yes. Because we'd always said, that like living in L.A., I always say, is, is, like, is like being in a casino, standing at a slot machine, putting coin after coin in the slot machine while strangers all around you are winning and you're just hearing people being and you're just putting you're just pulling and facebook and now and talking yes. about it on facebook oh man i mean <laughs> so i you know it was a little bit scary to leave um because you know my career was like nowhere when i left and then i said this will be if i if i move this will be the only way i ever get a staff job on a tv show <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, like two years after I moved, I got a staff job on Partners. Yeah, and you worked like, on Partners. And I was flying back and forth on weekends because I have two kids, you know. But, I have a story um, about that, but I want you to finish your thought. Okay. But, uh, I, I mean, in some ways, I mean, Carrie thinks that I, uh, he, oh, by the way, I call him Carrie because his real name is Carrie. He's a Tesla. His professional name is Robert Carrie. I'm sorry, it's confusing. Um, but he said he doesn't think I would have written Byron Seller had I been living here still. But I think that the perspective I got was better. And you know, you never know, but it, I, I'm, I, I feel more myself on the East Coast. Yeah. And it's paid off. You know, I've gotten to do a lot of, I have a lot of fun theater work now and I come here now and, excuse me, they always think you're, you know, it, it, it adds a little bit of exoticism, like, oh, you're in from New York. Yeah, for sure. And that they don't cancel the meeting as much. Like if, you've, if you're in only for the week... They're more likely to take the meeting. They'll, 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 they won't cancel as fast. It's amazing. So that helps. I remember, I always think of you in relation to Mitt Romney, and here's why. We were <laughs> on we the, the same, same... We have the same hair. We have, you, have, you have the same hair. We were on the same flight back from New York one time, mm-hmm. and it was... I remember being... getting ready to check in or something, and it we was the 40... We were standing at the gate, I remember. And the 47% take le- tape leap leaked, where he that said night, yeah. the 47% thing, and yeah. I was reading it online or something, and I was like, oh, shit, this is big. <laughs> this is big. And it I remember you being election. on that flight. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, what do you miss about LA when you come back? Oh, I have to go there and get that taco or that whatever. What's your What's your thing when you come back? I hate to say it, not much. I mean, I like going to Amoeba. I don't really have a place like Amoeba. Well, there, it's the only record store in the yeah. world. I mean, left. Well, in New York, there's there's Academy, but it's yeah. not as uh, big a selection. That's a good thing. Um, I like Amoeba. I love the Hollywood Bowl. If I'm here during yeah. the summer, I try to go to the Hollywood Bowl because there's nothing like that. Yeah. Um, there and 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 I like to go to. I, I love Disney Hall. Yeah, um, you know, we, it's a better concert hall than we have in New York right now. But you know, mostly when I come back, I lived here a total of seventeen years, and so I have a lot of friends here. And yeah. there's always that anxiety of running from person to person. I try to see as many people as I can. I always right. feel guilty because I don't manage it exactly right. But 
That's all right. Yeah. I've learned now I have to really plan. You can't say, oh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll text you and we'll figure it out. Because then I'm just stuck in a car trying to, like, and then, no, you know, texting is the most passive-aggressive form of communication ever invented. And yeah. people never respond quickly, and then you've screwed up. Yeah. Um, so I try now to, like, plan out the whole time right. before I get here. Now, I was looking on your IMDb page, and there's one role that you have as an actor. Well, gay quarterback. Um, in a movie called Totally Sexy Loser, and you play gay quarterback. <laughs> that looks made up. That Is that was, a real thing? It was made up by, by Jason Schaefer. Okay. And, and I, 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 I don't know. I, at first I thought, should I be mad that he... Because when I played it, I don't even know if it was called gay quarterback in You thought the it was script. called Chad. It was like quarterback or something. Right. I don't know. It was like... It was, it, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> and he changed it to gay quarterback after you delivered your performance. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how they'll know it's me. Um, no, you know, Jason is one of my best friends, and right. he made this movie. Jason wrote the movie Trick, for those who don't know, and then he made he wrote and directed this little movie called Totally Sexy Loser. Right on. And there was a scene, it was about a, a breakup, and there was a scene where one of the guys was in a gay football league. And there was a party, and I think I had one line or something. He asked me to do it, and that's how it's there. And you're gay quarterback. I'm gay quarterback. I love it. Um, <laughs> through the ups and downs, the successes, the things that didn't quite go, what sort of kept you chugging along? I don't know what else to do. Um, I have been lucky. You know, I, I've had ups and downs, but I, I try not to complain too much because I am someone who got... Over the course of 20 years, I've had five plays produced in New York, one on Broadway and four off-Broadway. Only two of them, you know, sort of were deemed like critical successes. But still, I've, got, I, I've had the chance to see my work performed at a high level. So that's been... That's, right. You got, up to, you got up to bat. And I know what it's like. And, I, and I lo there's nothing more exciting for me than sitting in a theater where a play I wrote is working. Yeah. You know, especially, I mean, this one, people love it so much, and Michael is so fantastic. And, and also, I've seen you know, Chris Hankey and, and Barrett Foer are great in it, too. That I, and, and Clancy O'Connor, who was the understudy in New York, is great in the part. Um, I mean, this week, we opened last night, but I, I went to all the previews. So <laughs> I was wondering, how much is, can, you, can you sit through? It's um, it's kind of embarrassing, but on this show... I think it's great. In this show, I, I, I went to all the previews here at the taper, because partly because I knew a lot of people who were coming and stuff, but also I love watching Michael do the play, you know? And this play has a lot of turns and, and surprises, and there's nothing more godlike than, <laughs> than feeling... It, 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 that Like, oh my God, I, you know, I just... Ah, I just made right. these people, you know, laugh that way or, or like applaud that way so do you ever fun. like eavesdrop in the lobby or whatever with something well this play doesn't have an intermission right. i used to i used to like go to the men's room during right. uh, during the intermission out of here which is you know can be counterproductive. yeah you better be you prepared know, for that your, yeah yeah once i mean when if memory service was opening off broadway and i went to the movies because it was the night the new york times was there and i came to the theater to see how it went and, and it was act two was still going on and i was and i went to the lobby and i'm sitting there and these two women came out of the theater and one of them looked at me and said, there are two empty seats in there if you want them. And walked out. Oh my God. <laughs> Ouch. That happens. It happens. People, yeah. it happens. I also, there's another line that jumped out at me from your play and I thought it was really something that we, as people that consume a lot of culture and have opinions about it and blog and tweet and um, one of your characters says, I don't want to spend my life as a less talented person making fun of more talented people. Mm-hmm. I think we all need to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? I was always afraid that people were going to say that's what this whole play is. Right. <laughs> that I am a less talented person making fun of Barbara Streisand. But 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 that's in there because, um, first of all, that I stole that line again. Like like you say, like things. That was someone I know. Do you know the Punch Drunk Players? You know these guys. Mm-hmm. They do. Oh my God! They do these great, really funny videos on YouTube. Right. <clears throat> and they did one. It's a clip from the Long Long Trailer. I think that's what that's yeah, called. The yeah, the Lucille Ball, Ball. thing. And they dub Lucy and Desi's singing voices. <laughs> right. And it's hilarious. And a friend of mine sent it to uh, a friend of his who happens to be actually a Barbra Streisand impersonator. I won't say which one. And that, that guy's response to this video was, I don't like seeing less talented people make fun of more talented people. And that always stuck with me. And right. And so that's why I stole it and put it in the play. Right. And it's yeah. a valid point. I mean, there's sure it's fun to like rip stuff apart and, and, and analyze it and all that. But, but it's, it's dangerous if you, if you can get sucked into it. Yeah. There's a difference between being an artist and a critic. Yeah. And if you want to be someone who makes things, you can't give into that, um, that impulse to just see everything as fodder for your own ability to trash things. And I would rather be the person doing the thing than the person commenting on the thing. Well, you know, Michael Spound, who I mentioned before, who was yeah. in my play and was on a hotel, after The Twilight of the Golds, he gave me this framed um, thing. I keep it in my office, even though I guess it's a little bit cheesy, but I love it. You should keep it. It's a, it's a in the background, it's kind of like a, a faint image of the marquee of, of Twilight of the Golds, the Booth Theater, and printed over it is the great uh, Theodore Roosevelt quote about... The critics, arena. The arena. I, that's yeah. a quote that I didn't... I happened upon it not long ago, and I don't remember it all very well, but I remember, I have it printed out somewhere, and I look at it. I keep it on my phone. Yeah. I, I won't do it now. D- you've got to get down in the dirt, and that's where the glory is. Yes. The glory is not sitting in the sidelines, yeah. equipping. I don't read a lot of comments on things, not that I even write that much, but like I have people that are on Google Alerts that follow everything. I don't care that much, or I'm, maybe my skin isn't that thick, but... Well, you have to stay away from it. I don't, but I'm not that drawn. I know people that have to know. I don't right. have to know. Yeah. I don't need to know. You're healthy. You're I, is that what it is? Is it healthier? Yeah. It's smart. I mean, because I've had my bad moments of, of all that chat, which is like the theater, you know, board where everyone writes stuff. I mean, I once, this is really embarrassing, but I once, someone wrote a really nasty thing about my play last Sunday in June online and said that I was... Um, I thought I was homophobic, and it was, you know, it was really, it was really pissed me off. And for some reason, I could click on the the screen name of the person who wrote, posted the comment, and it linked to an email address. And then I Googled that email address, and it turned out it was someone I knew. Not well, but someone I knew who worked in the business. And I wrote to them. <gasps> what did you say? I said, I just want you to know I saw what you wrote. And this person wrote back to me, oh my God, I never would have written that if I had known you. Yeah, known. I, I said, no I shit. I said, yes, yes, that's the, the point. That's anonymity. And he said, well, I mean, I would be happy to talk to you. And, you know, I'd love to get together and talk to you about what I thought was wrong with the play. And I wrote, I don't and care. You're buying the Kit Kat, fucker. I, said, I don't, yeah. I said, I don't care what you thought about the play. I said, the, but for me, I just think, you know, we both work in show business. It is hard enough to get our stuff done and to keep, to keep our sanity Right. In this business without tearing at each other. And, you know, whatever you say to your friends about something is fine. But if you go in, out in public t- 
to prospective ticket buyers, which is my living, yes, and trash me. And you better put your name on it, then. yeah. And yeah. you're not willing to put you your name on it. Should be willing to put your name. Oh, so it's so crazy. I Outfest is happening now. We're gonna wrap this up soon because I know you have to go. But um, I have a film in the festival this year. But I'm also like in a place in my career where I don't know what's next or how I'm gonna make money or whatever. So it's a weird place. And I never felt the gulf between the artists, the creative class at that particular festival, mm -hmm. and the donor-rich Hollywood people. It feels like <laughs> a continent away. Well, I went to the pool party. That pool day. party is, if you don't get some Hollywood asshole on you at that party, <laughs> you didn't go to that party. I always say. And every one of, all of us have those stories, and yet we all go. They have a filmmaker party at a house in the hills, at a pool, and there's, there's, um, a lot of like established Hollywood types, they're well-known writer, directors, uh, showrunners and stuff Producers, like that. Yeah. And you, and it's this ostensibly, I, I think I pronounced that wrong, uh, for the filmmakers. And yet they don't want to hear about your film. They don't want a fucking postcard. They want to fuck the twink and the square cut. Mm -hmm. And they're not even, they're not even, they're not even going to go down the hill and see a film. And yet there we all are. <laughs> and I'm like thinking, gosh, I better eat some more because then I don't want to buy a meal later. It, it just it feels like two different planets, and I'm and it's fucking all, over it. And it's always sponsored by Absolute. We might, <laughs> Karen and Karen, I always say this, like, you know, homosexuality brought to you by alcohol. <laughs> it's true, but all of my, we were at the so filmmaker. I went, I went this year because it was like opening night of the play. Perfect. You okay, got to see friends. It's my victory lap time. Yes. You know, no, and I, how were people? How how do people treat you differently when you're a success versus when you're, what are you up to? What's going um, on? Perceptibly different. Um, oh! You know, it is. I mean, uh, but you know, I, I, mean, I think I'm pretty good at remembering who I really know and who I knew and always treated me the same. Right. And I can enjoy getting nice attention from someone who never gave me the time of day, um, but I don't get fooled by it. Right, but, and keeping know. score isn't fun yeah. or healthy, yeah. but it is. Sometimes you're like, wow, what a cliche this moment you can't even believe what a cliche it is like if you had written the line they say you would have said you know what that's too, on the, too on the nose i know it's too that's too gross yeah but it kind of is but anyways but we all you know we were young once that's right <laughs> we were once and you know what the cool thing is you take all this stuff and you find a way to put it into your art and, and it, it gets easier i mean you, you the perspective comes the more you, yeah. you know with with as you do it more and you time passes and you start to freak out less. You yeah. Know? And I think I hopefully get to the point where I will stand up for myself a little bit more or, yeah. you know what I mean? I'll say, you know, I hope. Yeah. I and then I, I feel like there's something else you wrote in, in the, in the play where you talk about a certain kind of anger that everyone in showbiz has. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, maybe everyone on earth has it. And I thought, no, there's a specific thing <laughs> and he's getting at this specific thing. And I feel it myself. Cause I, I uh, I have a backpack full of it, and I have some extra stuff in my pockets, and I also have it in my glove box. Like I have a lot of it. What is that specific well, showbiz always, anger? I always love that. There's a, the classic line in Chicago where Roxy says um, about her, she and her audience, which is, "And I love them, and they love me, and I love them for loving me, and they love me for loving them for loving me, and we all love each other because none of us got enough love in our childhood." Right. And that's showbiz. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that. I think it's just some wound that drives us. I mean, uh, right. Laurence Olivier said acting is look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, it's there's some some wound that will never be. There's nothing's ever going to be enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, I read in the Writers Guild magazine 
Alex Ganza, who's a showrunner and I forget what show, did a commencement speech. And he talked about actors and writers. And he said, writers are similar to actors in that we want to be loved, but we're smarted enough to know that we never will be in that way. <laughs> and he goes, and this is That's why really actors cry when they win awards. You like me, you really like me, mm -hmm. and why writers don't. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I think he's right. That's really good. That's really good. Another another great one I heard is that a writer is someone who really wants wants you to tell you. Wait, let me get it right. A writer is someone who really wants to tell you a story, but doesn't want you to look at them while they tell it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> I I don't know. I think I think being creative brings up all kinds of stuff, and luckily you have somewhere to put it because it's yeah. You know, when even on my worst days, I'm like, I picked it. This is what I picked. Yeah, or it picked you. Maybe it picked me. You think it? I don't think it did. I, wish, <laughs> I can't even say that it picked me. I don't think it picked me. But whatever. Anyway, all right. I'm so excited to see your play again here in L.A. Go Thank see you. Buyer and Seller at the Mark Taper Forum. If you're in New York, it's still showing there. Through August 17th. Love it. And then pretty soon it'll be popping up. And Well, it's in New York till July 27th. And then after the taper, uh, Michael is going to do it for two weeks in San Francisco at the Curran Ugh. and in Dallas for a weekend because he's from there. Then we all, this production will also be going to Toronto, although the casting is not finalized for that. So I don't know whether it'll probably be one of the Alex Moores who's already done it in New York, but right. um, we don't know who. And um, But yeah, and, and then we're go hoping to be in London uh, early next year. Incredible. But we've also now released the rights to the show. So uh, I know the Old Globe is doing it, um, George Street Playhouse in New Jersey, um, one in Pittsburgh, one in Philadelphia. So there'll be lots of lots of. It'll just be out there. All over. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Does Michael ever get burned out? Does he talk to you about that? You know, it's funny. He went through a phase like a few months in. Uh, in New York, where he started to feel a little burned out and a little crazy. It's all him. He said physically it was fine, but mentally he went a little bit cuckoo. Yeah. And then we, we had, he asked to do a, re a rehearsal with us. And he, because um, he said, you know, during the show, he'll think of something like, oh, I wonder if I should do this. But then by the end of the play, he's, he's forgotten, forgotten it. it because it's so long ago. So we went through the play um, where he would he would do it and he would stop. Oh, this thing here. Can we should try I do this? it like this or should I do that? Yeah. And that kind of just recharged his batteries. And now I think he's found, he's gotten to a place where it's, I wouldn't say it's easy for him because it is a lot of work and right. a lot of concentration, but it's really fun for him. And uh, he loves doing it. I mean, I'm just so lucky. I mean, there are so few actors who are that good who are willing to do a play for this long. Right. It's an yeah. amazing showcase for him, too. Yeah. And Well, he and said it, to me, he said to me, he said, I've just come to realize, you know, that I'll never have a, a part better than this. And I said, oh, Michael, there's always Shakespeare. <laughs> I think that's what, that's what we'll leave it with. Jonathan Dolan, thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I want to get a little plug in here myself. Um, my email address is dennisanyonepodcast at gmail, and I'm going to try to really take this podcast to the next level and maybe see some money from it. Imagine that. Do it. So to help me do that, if you like the podcast, or even if you don't, if you want to write a review on iTunes, that stuff really helps, and I'm starting to gradually build, and then I'm going to start looking into advertisers. That's the project. That's the dream. I, I, I totally, you totally support, support it. it. I totally All right. Support it. Thanks so much for listening and go see Jonathan's show. Thank you so much. Thank you.